When I was in college, which was now like, uh, you know, knocking on two decades ago, which is just really, really sad. But anyways, you would walk into the lobby and I went to a Christian college. So there was not, you know, a abundance of alcohol within the dorm room lobbies. Um, no, there, there was an abundance of risk players. Board games. No, that's just it. There were, and maybe that's something that continues on is that. Um, there were people who played the game of risk, and I don't know if any of you all are risk, you know, like, you're just like, yeah, you know, what's the first rule of risk, like, the tactical rule, take Australia, okay, just want to make sure, I didn't even Google it, because I figured somebody would know that, so, you know, I guess if you're going to play risk later today, uh, choose Australia, here's one of the interesting things about risk, invented in, uh, created in 19, like, probably the mid-1950s, and uh, it was created by a French filmmaker. And, you know, the idea of that risk, world domination in French is funny in of itself, let alone the idea that it was made by a filmmaker. But it combines a lot of different um, aspects of gameplay that excites people. You know, there's the chance when you roll the dice. There's the strategy that is chess-like. You know, you have a fixed board, and this is the Europe vision. You're like, that's not even real risk. You know, like... Give me all of the risk, like the whole world's. And then it involves multiple players. And it usually takes just an hour to get things set up. So if you just want to nestle in with a nice long board game, risk is a good opportunity. I myself have played a couple times. And when you're a non-risk player and you play with people who are, it's the worst experience in the world. And I do not have the patience to actually dive into it. So not me. Um, but maybe it's just even the name of the game that makes it compelling because we think about risk a lot. The future is uncertain and therefore full of risk. You might have known Josh Nisley, you know, uh, our elder. The, he and Emily moved to Indianapolis a year or two ago. Ross, uh, that um, Josh was an actuary. And the job of an actuary is to manage risk. He works for insurance companies and for finance agencies. And the point is, is to figure out what the risk of investment on somebody like with a life insurance policy. They have, you know, numerical factors on you to figure out how risky a investment you actually are. So as much as we live risk, there are other people who are paid to actually attempt to manage risk and figure that out. Some of us love risk. Can I get an amen from my folk, some of you? Like I'm balls to the walls, right? Going out. Some of us are incredibly risk averse. I, I, there's a guy that I work with this week. We're in team meetings in Dallas. And uh, this guy's named Bob. Bob's a great guy. But he, seriously, everything he has, he's, he's in his uh, mid-60s. Everything is perfectly tucked in. Like, pens, everything aligned. Shirts ironed, fully pressed. And we were in the middle of this team-building exercise. And, you know, since I'm the new guy, they're like, Steve, you can lead it. And it was, everybody was getting really into it. And then there was Bob over here. And God bless him. He's just like, I'd rather be working right now. Like, that's what he said. He's like, I, I have phone calls to make, emails to make. I'd rather be working because all of this, he's like, I, I, I do nothing spontaneously. I know exactly what I want to do. And the only thing that scares me about retirement right now, and he was just talking about how he's going to manage his money now with the government. And it's like, all this minutia in his whole life was just averse to any type of risk. 
whether or not we want it or not, we can't avoid that topic. And we are continuing through our study of the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings. And we talked about how the book of Kings were about these ancient leaders in the nation of Israel about 3,000 years ago. These people that God called to lead his people. But the irony of it is that the leaders were not actually leading at all. And even though God said, if you just do what I ask, you'll be blessed. They found new and creative ways not to do that and hence make a mess of things. So it's a, actually a good book of leadership gone awry. So we are continuing to study that. We're in the book of 2 Kings. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 5. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, this story goes from national to international because we see how the powerful in another country interact with the people of God. So if you have, there's blue Bibles in the pews or maybe you have a digital version. We're in 2 Kings 5, blue Bible, what page is that? 263 in the blue Bible, 263. And my lovely wife is going to read the scripture for us today. And Kelly, if you'll get us started in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, please. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. We're introduced to this guy named Naaman, so for us to understand where he is, and you're like, he was a uh, military leader of of Aram. I know that means nothing to you to help you within the map. That is modern-day Syria. So next to Syria up on the map, that little purple dot is Damascus, which is now and was the capital. And if you know anything about world history over the generations as it was then, it is today that Syria and Israel were not compadres. They always had some sense of conflict. And by the way, other purple dot is the capital of Israel at the time. It's in a city called Samaria. So Naaman, who is a general of Syria, at some point was involved in a military, uh, even military conflict that involved Israel. We'll see this later. But we find two things about him in verse one. The first thing is that he had leprosy. And, you know, even in conversations with the wife this week, as I said, I was preaching through Second Kings 5 and talking about Naaman and he has leprosy. She's like, you're going to sing the song, aren't you? And I'm going to say, yes, I will sing the song because um, the Beatles song yesterday had a lyric that they wrote that fit purpose perfectly with leprosy. It was leprosy. All my skin is falling off of me. I'm not half the man I used to be. Oh, why did I get leprosy? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I did it. I did it. Okay. Now, understanding leprosy, we don't have to deal with leprosy today. A couple things about that, though. And we understand that leprosy is a skin disease that will actually eat away part of the body. And this is the thing. Number one, 
it, it, it was damaging because it was very visible. So when you had leprosy, people know it. If you know anything about biblical leprosy, lepers were supposed to be separate. But because of Naaman's position of power, he probably wasn't there. So we don't know how advanced it was. So he was able to be in power, but his leprosy would affect that. The second thing is it could actually prove fatal. There was no cure for it. And then eventually... That could actually end his life. So this was a struggle that he had that was real. Here's the second thing that we figure out in verse 1, which is very interesting. Is that Naaman was successful because God blessed him. Now recognize this. That's not good Bible writing, if you will. Because if the Bible is all made up like some people propose, you want to make it up so that it works out well. It's like, be with God. Everything awesome happens. What you don't want to hear is that sometimes God is good to the people who are the enemies of his people. This is more affirmation to me why I believe that the scriptures are true. So we see that Naaman's success as a military general was actually the result of God. And for some of this, that makes us perplexed. But recognize that the Bible even speaks to concepts like this. Because sometimes we worry when people who should be punished for doing bad things aren't punished. And we question what God is doing. And what we're told throughout the scriptures is don't worry about them when things happen. Because just because somebody who is evil is benefiting doesn't mean that God's like, it's all cool. I'm taking care of them. Understand that his moral range is far greater than even our understanding. So what we see here, the catalyst to the whole story, is Nathan's militaristic background that he happened to, in conquest, capture an Israelite girl, somebody who believed in God. And she, although a captured slave, had compassion for her master, Naaman, to the extent that she says, if only she'd see this prophet in Samaria, he could heal my master. Friends, I'm going to say that this young girl took a risk because there's always a risk in speaking up. Some of you don't do that at work. Some of you don't do that in your classes because raising your hand or offering something that has not been asked for is a risk. And some of us do not want to do that because we're afraid of what will happen. And I do believe a good example here is this young lady who stepped up and said, you know what, even though I'm a slave, even though I don't know if the prophet would heal it, I'm going to offer up this information and it was transformative and it changes the whole nature of the story. This risk will pay off. The theme here, though, which is interesting, of kings, and I even say the entire Bible is this, it's the right sizing of our concepts of power. And Naaman was the person of power here, and yet he didn't have access to the information that this little slave girl had. And that's something in life that we have to figure out. The more I'm around influence and power, the more I realize is that some people think that it is just all one type, one style, one form. It just doesn't exist that way. And in this story, it's the little girl who actually has all the power. And we see that played out in the scriptures. We see it throughout in the world. One of my favorite stories recently about that. Um, we have uh, some friends uh, fr- from Slovenia. And uh, he's a PhD in physics. He teaches at UC. And he's doing a year sabbatical over at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, because there's a large halogen collider over there. And uh, it, it's a uh, did I, uh, halogen. I said halogen. Thank you. Halogen. You know, it's like a light bulb. It just, you, they throw light bulbs together. They're really advanced in Switzerland. But anyways, the halogen collider, which is just awesome. 
Um, but the interesting thing is this, this whole massive construction, or construction, this massive research tool was rendered lo- useless early this year when a weasel, and this is not an actual picture of it, but I just was like, I, that just was fun. When a weasel chewed through a wire of the equipment and it shut all research down for a long time. It just showed like the best and brightest minds in the world were still held to the whims of a weasel. Um, I just love that picture. He's just like, is that actually a weasel? I don't even know. I just Googled it. It looks like a ferret, doesn't it? For a conversation, it's a weasel. Here's what we have to see, the theme of our lives of the world. What James brings is God poses the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's the right-sizing of power that we see here. Kelly, let's move forward. It's in the story. Will you read verses 4 through 8 of Second Kings 5? Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of this leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. One of the character flaws that I have that I'm working on is my ability to listen. I maybe, you know, hear, but I don't always listen well to what is happening. I'm trying to work on it myself. It makes myself, it makes me feel good then when I read the Bible and see that there's people who have had this issue all along because the Syrian king and the Syrian general, when the little slave girl said, there's a prophet in Samaria that can heal my master, both heard the king in Samaria can heal my master. Now, what did they hear? Because it felt it fell within their worldview. They, being people of power, concluded that only someone in power, true power, could have the ability to act in this way. So instead of approaching the prophet in Samaria, they approach the king in Samaria to say, you need to heal Naaman. So they, they handle it like somebody in power would. They collect a bunch of you know, items of value, of worth, silver and gold. And you're like, in clothes? You know, like, what's that about? Understand, again, in the ancient times, 3,000 years ago, clothing, you when you only had one, maybe two outfits top, clothing was something that was handmade, extremely valuable, that rivaled silver and gold. And they go to visit the king of Israel, who at that time, his name was Joram. And they go to Joram, and basically, you know, the, the exchange is one that should happen here. Healing's required, we have stuff, you know, heal me, get swag. And the king of Israel, Joram, then, is pushed to this level of insanity. I just told you how valuable clothing was. What does he do? He rips his clothes. And we talked about this previously in ancient days. It was either a sign of extreme sadness or just extreme despair. And the king is despondent because he believes he's being set up. 
because he's like, this dude knows that I can't heal anybody. And because I can't heal anybody, he's mocking me. The general is coming me to pick a fight and we're going to have war because he thinks somehow that I have the magic to heal somebody. And eventually Elisha the prophet So the one who the little girl was talking about initially says, King Joram, you're misunderstanding this whole thing. Just send it to me. I will help take care of this whole situation. So before we get here, can we pan out on this entire scene just to show us again how power sometimes gets us wrong? Because many times we assume that the people who have all of the influence are going to be bought off by that same influence. And friends, the longer you live, the more that you see that sometimes that's wrong. Some of the most affluent people I've ever been around live like paupers. Like they are just deceptively wealthy. And conversely too, I've been around some people who live in houses and drive cars that are just extended off of credit that they cannot afford, but they're trying to play them up, themselves up as that. Naaman goes to power. The king of Syria goes to power. When Joram, the king of Israel, sees this, he's despondent. Elisha says he's going to solve the problem. The king's despondency is what cracks me up. Because again, he's the king of Israel. He's the king of God's people. He is a king who has been in power because of what God's doing. But at the same time, he really doesn't buy into anything. Within terms of faith, what we have here is that the slave girl has massive faith in the power of God to work to the prophet to heal. Whereas the king of Israel has minimalistic faith, if any at all, to actually accomplish this. And remember just the status of the two. The king of Israel lived in a palace and sat on a throne and had great wealth. Where the slave girl lived far away from her land in a place where she couldn't even see God moving. And yet she had significant faith in what God is going to do. It's the reversal here. And ultimately, even though the king of Israel had access to the Lord, he was unwilling to take the risk. And saw his situation as doomed. What happens to Naaman? Kelly, verses 9 through 12. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman shows up in a parade because he assumes that he is the central character of this story. So he's going to the prophet and again, what's he doing? He is flexing his financial affluent muscles, right? So if, you know, a huge parade shows up and stops in front of your house, it's like, you know, the scene in Coming to America where the king comes to find his son, right? It's ridiculous, it's ludicrous, and yet, you know, you think, okay, this is what's happened. This is what I love about this. Elisha will not play, right? 
when this general of Syria, perhaps one of the most powerful people in the entire Middle East at the time, comes to his door. He doesn't, he's just like, I'm watching soap operas. I'm not even going to get off the couch. He sends his sermon, his servant out, right? His servant goes out and he's basically like, you just need to take a bath down the street. It'll all be good. Naaman's reaction might be like ours is, Right? So often we want God to show up in some huge and massive way. You know, we ask God, just give me a a direct, deliberate sign and I'll believe that you're moving. And sometimes what we do when we look for the massive is we overlook the minuscule, which can be transformative in its own right. And this is what Naaman said when, when he was given this task to go to the Jordan River and wash, he was angry. He was very disappointed. It's interesting, by the way, we talked about this last week because Elijah and Elisha actually, just much like the Red Sea, walked through the Jordan River. If you know anything about the Bible and the New Testament, there was a guy named John the Baptist who used the Jordan River as his central baptism site. He happened to baptize a guy named Jesus in the Jordan River. And I would say that this thread that weaves itself through Scripture is significant. Because not only is he just saying, this is how you get clean from your leprosy, What God is telling Naaman here to do is that you need a spiritual transformation. Go to the place where I send people all the time and be clean, not just physically, but spiritually. But what happens with Naaman? Naaman looks at, he's just like, wait, 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 wait. So I don't know if you can see, really small map. Does this have a laser pointer? Does it? I shouldn't push a button without knowing what it is. Yay! Okay. Ooh, it's green. New remote, green pointer. All right, that's exciting. Starts in Damascus, weaves his way down to Samaria. When he's in Samaria, he's told to go see the prophet, which is down here by Jericho, the Gilgal area. And then basically, he's traveled all this way to here, take a bath. And he doesn't want to do that. What's interesting here is that even though it's a minuscule task for Naaman, it's a massive risk. Why is it a massive risk? Because he might look stupid. He might look ridiculous. And because it violated his worldview of what was propriety, Naaman was about to just forego it. He's like, what I wanted was, you know, some huge production that the prophet would come out and lightning would happen and and it would just all change away, holograms, all that stuff, right? He wanted something huge and he was told to take a bath and that conflicted with his worldview of what power and prestige and transformation looked like like because it wasn't the way he envisioned he was about to walk away and again friends this is something i think that we should be challenged with and recognize that sometimes our worldview the way we see the world prevents us from truly experiencing some of god's greatest blessings because of how we perceive the world to work according to our minds sometimes it's not what god is doing and as such we end up missing on wonderful opportunities. This is a risk for Naaman. But in reality, there's no risk in the action at all. It's not like he said, okay, you know, the the healing to your leprosy is going to be stand on the top of a very tall cliff and jump. Right? That's not what it was. It was take a bath. The risk was with his worldview. If Elisha's right, then everything that Naaman believed was wrong gets more interesting as we close this out. Kelly, verses 13 and 14. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? 
How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Um, I'm sorry, I've missed a few verses there. Go ahead and read um, through verse 16. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. That's great. Okay. So I love here that, again, what we see in this whole story is Naaman is angry. His concepts of power have been refuted. He's ready to just leave and take that huge trip all the way back up to Damascus. And his servants are like, dude, dude, why don't you just do it? Just, just do it. You know, my Shia LaBeouf impersonation right there. Do it. Just do it. Why is he selling him that? Because, and they're basically like, look, it's just a simple thing. If he had told you to do some crazy, whack thing, you would have done it. Why don't you just do this simple, little, minuscule thing? You know why they could recommend that? Because they weren't people in power. And because they were powerless, for their, their risk quotients were at different levels. Again, sometimes when you've experienced so much, that risk seems monumental because you might lose everything. For Naaman, he just didn't want the embarrassment that came. Uh, Understand that Naaman's existence as a military leader was crouched within his power, right? And if his enemies thought he were were powerless, they would mock him and they would go to battle against him. Who knows how victorious he had to be in battle if he could just project power and taking a bath is not power, right? That's why we take showers. Bubble baths. No man has ever looked powerful in a bubble bath. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, I love that the servants did this because why could they do it? Because they were like, look, you have nothing to lose. One of my heroes in life is my dad. And I I always try to figure out like, you know, and by the way, growing up like most, you know, males, my dad was not my hero, right? I wanted to punch the old man. But the longer I get there, what I realize he came through, I'm like, I have nothing but respect for him. And one of the reasons why is because throughout his life, he took risks that you know, some people just wouldn't have take, you know, taken. Like, he, he hustled his way when he grew up in an abusive household. He, and, you know, when he was told, you're not college material, you need to go to Vietnam, he went and survived. Uh, when he was working the whole time for the energy company and decided he was going to start his own business, he just left it all behind and started his own business. And what's funny is that he's unflappable now. Like, my dad's this most, like, ridiculously optimistic guy that you've ever seen. And the reason why, you know, I always ask, why is he that way? Because he grew up in, in, in the worst situation imaginable, but he came over that. Why, why is this guy just always like, it's a happy, happy day? Why? Because he started with nothing. And when you start with nothing and you risk everything, there's nothing to lose. And you just are like, it's great. So it's funny, my brother and him, they're like running the business together right now. And it, they're just Mutt and Jeff because my brother's like, oh, it's just going to be horrible and worse and all this stuff. Because he has only known how things have been successful. My dad's like, hey, you know what? Compared to when I was getting, you know, when I was in the slums, getting beat on by my drunk father, this is a pretty good life. Risk is directly related to where we are and exist. And the servants were like, dude, just do it. And Naaman finally was like, okay. And can you imagine? He's like, this is stupid. This is stupid. You know, walks in, dips, 
And I love the descriptiveness of the Bible right here, right? It's just like he had flesh like a, a young boy. Just to say that his leprosy was completely gone. That it, he was healed. That it worked. The risk plays off, even though he didn't even want to take the risk. And I love this too. So then he goes back and he's just like, I better go back to the prophet. Because the prophet's nowhere to be found right here. He says, go take a bath. And by the way, he didn't say go take a bath. He sent a servant out. And he won't even see Naaman until after he did it. He's like, you know, can you imagine Elisha comes out? He's like, told you so. What is Naaman's immediate response? Now, this is what's interesting. Understand this. What's Naaman's initial response? He's like, look, I brought all this stuff. Have it. Take it now. Take it. And Elisha's like, nope, not taking a thing. I'm not taking a thing. Because that's not how power works in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. We're not going to read through the rest of the story. But by the way, his, sermons, his servant later, the guy who went out, he's like, I'm going to take that dude's stuff. And then it works really bad for him. You can read the rest of the story at some other time. But I want to stop here for us to see what God was doing through Elisha. And if you were with us last week, we saw that the first thing Elisha happened in his ministry is that he healed the waters of Jericho when they had bad drinking water. And he performed a little miracle right there. And what we've missed over the last few chapters is Elisha actually interacted with the king of Israel and showed there how he could bless the nation. And here, here's a man coming from Syria and he's taking care of that. Basically, Elisha is healing at the local, the national, and the international level. Every compartment is checked, right? And that this is the same way in which God works and moves, and that's the broader picture. Because sometimes, and I was joking with Erica earlier about praying for the nation, you know, you know, there's a reason we can pray for the nation, because God is over our nation. But recognize this, like too many red-blooded Christian Americans don't understand, is that God's care for the world does not stop at the con- continuous United States, Hawaii, Alaska, and some of the Virgin Island territories, Right? Puerto Rico on a good day. No, it extends beyond that to the entire world. God cares about all things. So what's interesting for us is recognize this, is that the same God who cares about what happens on the other side of the world cares about what's happening in your individual life. And Elisha says he has all sway about that. And how does that work? Not in the way that power normally works. It doesn't work with sheer influence. It operates in humility. And the lesson for this Syrian general who later goes back and he's just like, by the way, even though I'm going to have to go back in the courts with the king because the king's going to bow down and he's an old dude, you know, so I'm going to have to help him up. You know, even when I'm doing that, understand, I'm just helping the old man out. Ultimately, I care about the God of Israel because he healed me. I believe that he's God. It's transformative. And it all happens with a series of minuscule risks. There was no major risk taken at any place here. Not even the king when he was just like, I'm going to send this dude to Elisha. Because he's like, I'll send him to Elisha. If it doesn't work out, I'll be like, well, he was the best we had, right? Like none of these risks within this story were large, but they add up to complete this circle of the story. And I think that's the takeaway for you and I is what then is risk to we? I like triangles. I like triads. It all fits together. Okay? I think there's risks that we take every day. This morning as I was finishing the PowerPoint, because we were in Lexington last night, I had to let Kelly drive while I'm in the laptop. And I have this laptop in my face. I'm not paying attention. It's not that you're a risk. You're a great driver. She's a wonderful driver. This is not the point of that. Don't, this isn't like some misogynistic trail. Just take this though. Is that we're going 80 miles an hour and I'm focused on my laptop, right? 
and we don't even think about this, but, you know, just any craziness from another driver or some natural disaster or something, and that's it. You know, we have these little risks that we take in everyday life that, life that we don't even know, you know? And sometimes you're like, maybe it's just, you know, do I cross the street? Other times it might just be small, and you might think it's just an everyday occurrence or appearance, but there's risks to be taken that you need to decide upon. And in the scheme of things, it might not seem significant, but it's risks that we experience. There's larger risks than this, too. Notice in my preacher way, I'm going E and E. There's the extended risks. These are the larger risks that you and I have to take. And some of you might be in the midst of that right now. Maybe your risk here is just like, I've got to make a vocational decision that's going to affect the next 10 to 20 years of my life. Maybe God's calling me to move someplace Maybe I need to be with this individual the rest of my life, right? All these different risks that we have to take that extend over a long time. It's the same thing that you do every day, but it's magnified. And these are the larger risks. But friends, even though these are the ones that we, you know, this is, these are the ones that we, we ask counsel over, right? You ask maybe family members or friends, or maybe you go online in a chat room, right? You like... There's all these aspects that we investigate. There's the much broader one that we believe exists, and that's the eternal, the eternal risk. You know what's fascinating to me is that the extended and, or excuse me, the everyday risk usually rivals that with many people in the eternal, because the eternal is where we come down with our aspect of faith. What's going to happen to me when I die? Is there an eternity? And if so, what will I be doing during that eternity? And what's very interesting is that most people spend as much time on that as they do on their everyday risk, where it's those extended ones in life where they're just like, no, it's more important for me to figure out my job than for me to really comprehend what all of this is about. And this isn't just a, <laughs> this isn't just to say, you, you know, guilt-inducing, you need to think about your eternity, But as we contemplate all those, I think that there's a common foundation under which all of those need to be structured. And to this, I go to Jesus. I'm a preacher. It's what I do, right? I always go to Jesus. But I think we ought to go. And Mark 8, oh, I did that. Eternal. Mark 8, 36. Jesus said this. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Jesus is basically at this point talking about what we've talked about within this power struggle in Naaman. That there's so many things that we can pursue within this life that you have to ask yourself, how does that fit into the context, context of the eternal? Right? But this is what I would offer to us today. Is that that is a basis. If I think eternally within line of all those other risks, then it will put them into context. The number one question I always get asked from people pastorally is this. What is God's will for my life? And I am enthusiastic about continually disappointing people. When I just say, be with him for eternity. That's his goal. No, 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 no. What do I do between here and there? And then honestly, as long as you're not doing something within the realm of sin. So it's like, no, the will of God is that I randomly kill people. That doesn't work. The will of God is that, you know, I, I, I burn down villages. It's just not there. So far as it doesn't thwart the destiny of other people, evil, sin, as long as it doesn't crouch within that, God's will is just that you 
be with him for eternity. And when you understand that that's the point, the, the point of risk, then you'll find yourself to be less risk adverse and be able to give all of that back to him. So that's it. I solved it for you. That's what you can do. No, it doesn't, does it? Because here's the thing that I always dwell with, and I had a great conversation with my in-laws last night about this. And by the way, I'm sleep-deprived too. I like got in from my flight at like Saturday morning at 3 a.m., and then we woke up this morning from Lexington to drive in here. It's just I'm not quite here. So we were up late last night, about 12.30 or something, and we were talking about church because they're, they're part of this great church in Kentucky. And I actually spent some time in Kentucky last week talking to a bunch of ministers. And, you know, God bless them. This is like down in the holler and stuff like that. I love their good old boys and stuff. I love that. But just the, the way that they interact with faith, I just can't relate. Because for them, it comes down to faith. It's like, God said it. I believe it. That proves it. Boom. Believe or don't. That's the line. You know what, friends? I think we all struggle a little bit more than that, don't we? I think we see, and being urbanites too, you see the diversity of the world much more than we do when we're cloistered away from that. And seeing the diversity makes you start to think. You know, there's a chance that happened to me last week out of here. You'll walk out the front door, you'll be hit up by somebody for money just right there on the corner. You see abject poverty. You see issues that happen all the time. You see some of the best and the worst of society spread out right before us. It's difficult for us to understand all of this within the context of faith. Like, it's difficult. But recognize this. The Lord, the God of the universe himself, risked all to come to this earth to give all for us because he believed in us. God believed in you. And in that, we can wrestle with these things. We can struggle. It might not all make sense, and that's okay. Just keep it in mind, and these risks become manageable. What does it gain someone? Or what does it do for somebody if they get everything in this world but don't get that eternal part of life. That's, that's, that's what we're about. We're trying to say we believe there's more to this. We believe it's about the eternal. How is that aligned? It's aligned through Jesus. That's what we do. We believe that God came to earth, lived life perfectly, died a horrible death for us, but in suing so changed our eternity. We believe that Jesus changes eternity. That's why we worship. And that's why we conclude in our worship as we do often with communion. Because this is the sign of the riskiest venture in human history. How would God be received if he were a human being? And we saw it was horrible. It was horrible. But from that risk, everything changed for us. Because of a great risk taken, our lives and our eternal lives are made new. So we're going to have a time of communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'll pass around the trays. We invite you to take a piece of bread, a cup. Use this moment just to remember the risk of Jesus and the risks we have to take in light of that. I'll pray and we'll have communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of total power being showed up by the powerless. Because we see servants here, Father, who had nothing, who cared much for those in power, and ultimately were the levers of full transformation. And Father, we see that same just juxtaposition within you being seated high on a throne in heaven, coming to earth, living life, dying for us, so that eternity would be different. And we thank you for that now. And as we take communion, we remember the horribleness of the cross, the brutal death 
where the body was bruised and broken and hung on a tree. We thank you for this bread. Where the blood flowed freely, the life leaving the body of Christ. We thank you for this cup. We thank you for this time of remembrance. We remember the cross. We remember Jesus in his name. Amen.